There is a uh, passage in the Psalms, and oh, it's a long time ago now, but it arrested my attention. I had read it any number of times. I, I, I read through the book of Psalms probably about eight times a year, but I'd never caught its meaning uh, before. Maybe a better way to say it is that I had never seen the heart behind the words. I, I had never appreciated the soul that was moved to write them. Uh, The statement is simple enough and easy to pass over in the flow of the song, but for me it became a window into the spirit of a man who cared deeply about the things of God. And through him I had a glimpse into the heart of God himself. I, I understand that if a mere man with all of our common failings and sin could be moved to such compassion, how much more compassionate would the God who is love be? The verse is uh, Psalm 119 and verse 136, which won't be up on the screen. I want you just to listen to me as I read it. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. Now, what struck me about that statement is that the most natural reaction of a human being to the a law being broken would either be anger at the effrontery of it, that someone would dare think themselves too good to bother with what we ourselves know we need to keep, or a kind of self-righteousness would rise up because we would... We wouldn't recognize our own failures and we'd begin to look down on such a person. But this man felt an immense sorrow. And when I asked myself why he felt as he died, it came into my heart that he was seeing all of the suffering brought into the world because of sin and it broke his heart. You understand, the law was never given as a kind of an exercise. It was put into place as a safeguard to, to kind of protect our, our sinful human beings from the consequences of our sin. If we would keep that law, or at least attempt to, it would help us. I know we fail at it miserably all the time, but even the attempt to keep it makes for a better world. Now, if you take a moment and you think about all of the awful things that have come into our world because people break God's law. I mean, the broken homes, the divisions between people, the abuses of our world and of our environment, the wars and the poverty and the death, the quarreling and the fighting and the backstabbing as people try to claw their way to the top and all the brokenness left in their wake as they trample over others chasing after their lust. The image which begins to form when you consider those things is appalling and I don't think we can tolerate that very long. And for the psalmist, so deeply moved, the tears just flowed unchecked. Now, another biblical writer had a similar insight into our human condition, but his response was less emotional. He's more analytical in his reaction. 
And, and one has a sense, if you read carefully, that his response, that he felt sorrow too over the things that he saw, and yet he was intent on describing their cause and trying to adequately evaluate their consequences in order to give his readers a feel of the real impact of such things. So he doesn't let his emotions interfere with his analysis. Solomon is that analytical writer, and Ecclesiastes is the book he wrote, which we've been studying for the last several weeks. And with the exception of Jesus Christ, Solomon was the wisest man who had ever lived. And yet, in spite of all of his wisdom, he did many foolish things, which, we've said it before, it brought much heartache and grief both to him and those around him. And Solomon writes from the vantage point of a man expressing regret of an all-but-wasted life who yet sees clearly enough because of his wisdom both the causes and the results of such a life, who understands this one who has missed a turn in the road of this life what direction he should have taken. Today, we're going to look at the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes. And the structure of that particular chapter uh, ties the beginning to the end, kind of like bookends. And that first section, uh, he observes a distressing truth, and he tells us about it. And the last one, uh, that last section of that uh, chapter, informs us of the cause which makes it all but certain such things will continue to exist in our world. Solomon sees very clearly one of the real and terrible consequences of our fallen human nature. Our world is full of oppression. In verse 1, Solomon writes, Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. The cause of that oppression uh, is that humans have turned away from God. They have no room for him in their thoughts or their lives or their hearts. And, and so out of them comes this steady stream of ugliness. Without God, there, theirs is a life merely lived under the sun. Their, their vision never rises higher than the things of this world. Their philosophy is one must get what one can while one can. And oppression of others is the result in a headlong quest for things that they might accumulate. Solomon goes on to describe that subjugation, telling us what it looks like when it's established in the land. In the land. Verse 1 again, he says this, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comfort. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll know that as we've made our way through this book, you'll understand something that others won't. You'll understand that those who are doing the oppressing gain nothing of real value from their actions. What they're doing is only a flash. It's an emptiness, a chasing of the wind. Their whole life is but a vapor. Uh, they come up empty-handed. But the grief they cause is real and substantial. And Solomon looked beyond the mere economic impact. He saw the tears of the oppressed, the woe 
of human hearts. He saw the sorrow wrung out of human souls by those who were fast losing their own humanity. He also saw they had no comforter, no one to wipe away the tears, no one to take their part. They, they were just the inevitable collateral damage of the race to the top. And he continues his evaluation. Let me read the rest of verse 1 and all that precedes it. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they had no comforter. The oppressors had all the power. The oppressed had none. Every other earthly power seemed to line up against them. And those who could have made a difference to the poor didn't. Their tears went unnoticed. The powerful who should have been merciful were of no comfort at all. And that fact that there were no comforters stuck out to Solomon. He sees it. He says it. He repeats it for emphasis. This world without God, the teacher said, is full of oppression. And without God, there is no one to bring comfort. In verses 2 and 3, Solomon expresses the revulsion that he felt when he looked straight at the oppression in the world. And I declared that the dead who have already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is one who has never been born, who has never seen the evil that is done under the sun. That fact of oppression, the fact of sin, when one sees it and understands it, makes you feel as though it would be better if you were dead so you no longer had to look upon that kind of stuff than to be alive and to continue to have to see it. And better still, maybe it would be that person who had never yet been born and had never had to look on that kind of thing. The oppression and the tears which it brings is more almost than can be endured. Maybe we need to stop here for a moment. Maybe I need to put this into a little better perspective. You see, we need to understand that Solomon isn't just talking about the worst of the worst here, though he, of course, includes them. He's talking about all the oppression that he's seen under the sun. And that includes those who are on the low end of the scale who are just starting out, so to speak. Now, it is possible, I know that some people start their journey intent on doing anything, including oppressing others to get ahead, but most begin only by looking intently at what they think is the prize. They have their eyes set on it, and as they make their way to it, they bump into others on the way, and they may or may not say, excuse me, but they aren't deterred in the least. They just keep going. But, but then they find that in order to get ahead, one has to kind of elbow this one or that one out of the way. They stand in the way. They have to be gotten in front of it. It, it seems unfortunate to them, maybe, but they think, well, I've, I've worked hard. I, I deserve this. Or maybe they think that person's always just thinking about themselves anyway. Or maybe they, they reason with themselves and they say, I'll be able to do so many positive things when I get to the top. And so they keep elbowing the way ahead. Soon they're tripping others from behind. And it's now somehow easier to do. And hardly a thought is given to it. There is, after all, all that stuff at the 
top. And so things go. Uh, until running over corpses is nothing at all and the mad dash to reach their goal. Now if you were to question them about it, they'd have all sorts of excuses. Oh, everyone's doing it. That's what they'll tell you. Or they'll say, if I don't get ahead, if I don't do it, somebody else will. The one that I think is the most deceptive and the most destructive, one I hate the most, is I'm just providing for my family. When what your family needs is a heart of compassion, a heart that can love in a way that they need to be loved, not a heart grown cold and hard that's still seeking its own way instead of the good of others, you live as an oppressor, and all of your practice is the opposite of what your family needs. Life without God makes a world where real oppression that brings real human suffering and grief orders both the day and the night. Now, maybe you're sitting there, and maybe you're thinking something like this. Well, Solomon was king. Wasn't he king? I mean, I mean couldn't he have intervened? Couldn't he have done something about it? And, and I'd like to say to you, let's hope that he did. <laughs> let's hope that he did, at least at some point. Let's hope that he intervened. Uh, early on in his reign, I think we can be pretty sure he did. And maybe later, after, after paying the price of all of his sin, maybe he, he began to turn back toward the, trying to do the right thing. But even so, he wasn't the ruler of the whole world. Uh, so he had no way of stopping what was happening in other places. And even in his own kingdom, he couldn't have been aware of everything that was happening. A- and yet, Solomon understood something. He understood that even if one were to establish a relatively just kingdom, the weight of our fallenness, the, the whole weight, is constantly leaning against it. And in time... Without God, it too will topple. That's a thought he comes back to at the end of the chapter in verses 13 through 16. Now, I want to tell you something. The Hebrew in these verses is very difficult, and it allows a number of different interpretations and translations. So you you may have something different in your Bible than I'm going to read. But the main points of those um, shades of meaning bring us out to roughly the same place. And Solomon right now is using a hypothetical example to illustrate the kingship, both its strengths and its weaknesses. So in verse 13, he says, Better a a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. I mean, you can't help but wonder when you read that, can you, that Solomon might be reflecting somewhat on his own situation. I mean, he'd done so many foolish things, and now he was old. And, and for a long time, he couldn't even heed a warning. Now, if you have a king like that, Solomon says, uh, you'd be better off following a wise man, even if he were young and even if he were poor. And, and that's exactly what's happening in Solomon's example. The people made this wise young man the king in verse 14. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been poor, born poor in poverty within his kingdom. And for a while, this youth has become king, and he was wise, and he was young, and he was ruling in a good way. It seems like everything is going 
good looking good as verse 14 or 15 in the beginning of verse 16 says i saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth the king's successor and there was no end of all the people that went before them his reign right then seemed to be a great success but did you notice did you notice who those were who were following the king they were those who lived under the sun well, we all do, don't we? <laughs> yeah, but in Ecclesiastes, not always, but often, that phrase, under the sun, the context dictates the meaning, but, but it refers to people who give God no thought in their life, whose vision rises no higher than the things of this world. So, so the things may be going right in the right direction, the hearts of the people are leaning the other way. And verse 16 tells us what happened at the end of his reign. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless in a chasing after them. Whatever good that had been done was about to be undone. That's the way it is with life lived under the sun without a thought to the God who created it all. I want you to stop for a moment and think about our nation. This nation has stood how many years now? 250? 230? I, I don't remember the number. But we have stood. We were built on Christian principles. We have stood as a light in dark places over 200 years, and the weight of sin has been leaning on this nation for how long now? And it has pushed God out of the schools and Christianity out of the public squares. You take a moment and look at the things that we have accepted in our culture today. We've seen oppression, at least the beginning of it. The little sisters of the poor were forced to go against their uh, religious, heartfelt belief to provide birth control and, and abortions for the people that work for them. Look at the people who are willing to tear down everything this nation has stood for. See, that's the nature of life without God. That's the weight of sin and the consequences it brings. Now, we're not without hope. We have a great God and we can pray. But without him, this nation will not be what it once was. See, our fallen human nature means that we live in a world where when God is not included, the horror of real oppression rules the day and the night. And, and even when wise rulers rise, their reforms are short-lived for people who are fallen. And the weight of sin leans against all of that. 
Now, as depressing as all of that is, uh, Psalm is not quite done describing the dark side of human existence without God, but he is right now going to turn a corner here in this chapter so that as he moves forward, he tells us how we can live wisely in this fallen world. So from his vantage point, as an old man now who has has done so many foolish things, and yet he's wise beyond us. He tells us first about our labor, right? Now, if you've been here, you know we've been talking about this. We know uh, from earlier in, the, in uh, Ecclesiastes that the work that we do, the labor that we have, the jobs that we do is intended by God to, to bring a certain amount of joy or satisfaction in our life. So even slaves... Uh, if they, if they know they're serving Christ, find satisfaction in their work. And that's what uh, God wants for us, is to find that kind of satisfaction. But there are two stri- extremes to avoid. There's, and there's one thing that we need to know and accept, and Solomon is going to tell us what those things are. If we want to be satisfied, we ex- ex- avoid the extremes, and we accept this one thing. So I'm going to begin with Solomon's second thing, because it'll work best for for the order of things here. Uh, the first thing, the second thing he tells us to avoid is uh, that we ought to be avoid being idle. Uh, that's the way of fools. So we read that in verse 5. It says, fools uh, fold their hands and ruin themselves. The fool avoids work. They fold their hands instead of putting their hands to the plow or the grindstone. Uh, it, it, that's an extreme. And the wise man or woman is going to avoid that. The idleness of the fool their refusal to work, their folding of their hands ruins them. And it doesn't just deprive them of the necessities of life, making them beggars or destitute. It does much more than that. It ruins them as human beings. Uh, You know, God made us with something to do. Work is not a curse. It's for sure. Not every job is for every person. I understand that. But the honor of work was given to humankind before sin entered the world. And and I've said it before, but it bears repeating. So I want every child that that goes through the ministries here at Y Bible Church to know um, three things. I, I want them to know that God made them so God could love them. I want them to know that God made them so that they could love God. And I want them to know that God made them with a purpose. That there is something that God has for them to do that no one else can do. Other people can do things like it, but no one else can do what God made them to do. I I think adults need to know that too. Uh, Our jobs may not be that purpose, but it may be the way to fulfill that purpose. Years ago, I, I knew a, a man who never went to work. At least I'd never seen him with any kind of job. He, he was obviously not wealthy, and yet neither was he destitute. Now, something about him and his situation uh, always seemed odd to me, but I, I, never, I never knew quite why. And then one day I saw him walking with a cane, and I, I asked him if he'd hurt himself, and he said, oh, no, no. <laughs> he said, I'm fine. I just have to go to my disability checkup. And then I understood. Uh, he was gaming the system. He, he thought he was getting over on the man. Well, all he was really doing was destroying himself. It's, it's kind of hard to describe what I saw when I looked at him. 
I, I hadn't understood it before, but I, I came to realize there was no struggle to his existence. But there wasn't any life there either. There was no thought about what his deception was doing to his wife or his daughter or his parents, his brothers, his sisters, his family, his friends. There was only him. Only him and his scheme to keep on folding his hands and doing nothing while getting paid so he could beat the system. Work is given to us as a gift from God. It's not always easy. But we can find joy. We should find joy in what he's given us. The fool avoids work and begins decaying. The other extreme is found in verse 4 when Solomon tells us to avoid envy, which drives a person to strive for things which truly don't satisfy. So he writes this. I saw that all the toil and achievements spring from one person's envy of another, and this too is meaningless. That's a passing breeze. A chasing after wind. There's nothing but emptiness there. Envy of others and of the things they have, whatever they are, fame or power or fortune, it'll drive you. It'll control you. It will rule you. So you will toil and slave and work away your very life to get ahead of them. And only to find if you ever do get to the top, (laughs) if you ever make it to the top of the heap, you'll discover it's the loneliest place in the world. You may not realize it right away, but one day it'll come upon you like a trap. From personal experience, Solomon knows the bitterness of that disappointment, and he emphasizes it in the example found in verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. He's repeating and emphasizing what he's already said. In verse 8, he's very pointed when he writes, About such a man, this driven man, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his well. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. The teacher is describing a man that's all alone, and yet even though he has no family to enjoy life with, he keeps driving himself to work. He's never content with what he has. This is a kind of worst-case possibility. The man knows only toil, and he doesn't experience any good from it. And, and why am I doing this, he asked. But, but he has no answer to his question. He just keeps on working. Solomon gives a verdict. It's such a life as passing breeze and a miserable thing. But that brings us, <laughs> that brings us to the good part of this whole message, right? And and, uh, the first thing that's good about this uh, message is that there's this truth that we ought to know and accept. And Solomon tells us what it is. And I'm going to put it in my words. He says this. He says, enough is plenty. (laughs) It's all we need. Verse 6 says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. Solomon offers his wisdom on the matter. Enough, which has to come from hard work. Idleness isn't going to get you there, but one handful with peace is much better than more. Enough is better than two handfuls and being driven and still knowing only emptiness. 
Ecclesiastes isn't the only place the Bible speaks this truth. Proverbs 15, 7 says, Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf of hatred. Or 17, 1, Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Psalm, 130, I mean, for, for Psalm 37, verse 16, David says, Better the little the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. Exodus tells us of the manna that God gave his people in the desert. And each night while the people slept, the ground was covered in it. In the morning, when they got up, the manna was there. The Israelites were told to go gather just enough for that day because God would supply their need each and every day. And nevertheless, some people went out and gathered enough for that day and the next. When they woke up, the manna had kept overnight, now stunk and was covered with maggots. One handful truly was enough. Two disappointed them and wasted their effort, and in the end it did them no good. I read of a certain kind of a monkey trap (laughs) that works on the monkey's greed. Maybe you've heard of it too. The hunter puts some food into a jar, a small mouth jar, and then he ties it to the tree. And, And the monkey comes along, and he's able to take his open hand, and he's able to put it down into the mouth of the jar, and he can get a hold of the food that's in there. But he grabs the food, and now his hand's a fist. And he can't get his hand out of the jar. Uh, but he won't let go. He just has to have it. And the hunter comes along, but the monkey won't go, let go of the food, and so he becomes food for the hunter. Striving for stuff brings only death. Now, don't misunderstand me of the Scripture. The Bible encourages us to be wise and to plan for the future. The problem comes when we're trusting in our plans instead of God or when we are merely uh, being prudent. We're not merely being prudent anymore, but trying to get ahead of others. Or when we think we can't by our wealth or fame or power control the times and events which come our way. Solomon says, Enough is plenty. <laughs> Plan for the future, but your, put your hope in God. So our fallen human nature means that we live in a world where God is, uh, when God is not included, that oppression is what we can expect. And even a, if a wise ruler rises, the reforms are short-lived and because people are falling. And envy and foolish bring either drivenness or ruin while wisdom recognizes enough is better than either. That's a lot of information, isn't it? Have I poleaxed you guys? Is it too much? Well, if it is, I'm sorry, because I'm not done. I have one more thing I have to tell you. The final thing we're going to look at today is one more piece of the picture which Solomon has been revealing to us is tell us how to live a life that's a full life. He's been revealing a piece or two of that truth uh, at a time, and we've seen it as we've gone. We saw first that God designed things so that real joy comes to us. If we know God's plan and accept it, it comes to us in fellowship and warm friendship of family and friends. And that we could and should find joy in the honorable work that we've been given to do. And then it was revealed that we can find happiness in this life which God has given us. There's so much that we can do and so little which is forbidden us. So we should be happy when we can. We can't always. 
times come and we can't be happy or, or when it just isn't appropriate, though joy is always available to us. But our faith is a happy religion. Solomon also told us that we should do good whenever and however and to whoever we can. And we've just seen the tranquility comes when we accept the truth that enough is plenty, that, that it's a trap to fall into envy and strive or to refuse to work. And now Solomon adds to that. Now he tells us that life is best lived in community. <laughs> Verses 9 through 11, he, he gives us a number of examples or or ways in which living in community adds to our life. We begin in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. They have a good return for their labor, he says. Uh, we're called to work. We understand that. But he's telling us something more here. There's a kind of synergy going on. If each man simply produced as much by himself as they did together, uh, there would be nothing to commend it. But if they work together and they accomplish more than merely the addition of their individual labors, they have a good return for it. Now, I found this to be a case. In the days when I was working as a carpenter, I had bought the material, I laid it out, I built the wall, I stood it up in place, I attached it to the structure all by myself. Give me one more person and I could build three or more walls in that same amount of time. We gain more together than we can apart. And, and then, too, if you're part of a community, you have help when you stumble. Verse 10, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. A pity anyone who falls and has one, no one to help them up. Falling down, is, I, I really believe, is a, is a symbolic of failure in general. And when we're in community, when I fail, I have you to come alongside of me and help me. And when you stumble, I should be there to help pick you up. And pity those people that don't have that. Verse 11 tells us even more. There is comfort in this community. Also, if two lie down together, it says, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Lying down together for warmth is in and of itself true. My son, Bo, when he, in his military training, uh, spent time out in the cold, the coldest training that it ever had, so he had been told at that time, they were practicing their survival skills out in the Northwest, and, and they were trying to live off the land. And when this team laid down to sleep together, they slept right next to each other, all together for the warmth that it gave them. But Solomon means more than just that. This is a word picture of the mutual comfort that we can give one another against the harsh realities of life. If you're alone, you don't have anyone who understands. You don't have anyone who can comfort you. How can you comfort another person if you're all alone? And finally, in a world hostile to the righteous, in community, there's strength to face the day. Verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three sands is not quickly broken. That statement on face value is obviously true. One may be overpowered, but two can defend themselves, but it stands for more than that. We have responded to God's call in his son. We have put our faith in him and the work that he did on the cross. And yet we, we live in a world that sells itself to sin. It's no friend to our faith. And together we can find the strength we need to stand against it and to stand for Christ in righteousness. 
Verse 12 goes on. The second sentence, which I didn't read, tells us more. Solomon says a cord of three stands is not quickly broken. And that second sentence uh, either means is promoting a greater com- sense of community, working with even more people to accomplish even more, which certainly makes sense. Or Solomon is pointing to how powerful a thing it is to have God in your life. That's the traditional understanding of that third chord. That God in the midst of our community makes us powerful. And that's certainly a legitimate application. So, so let me summarize. I know we went through a lot of material. I wish I knew a better way to do it. But let me summarize it. We gain more together than we can apart. If you're part of a community, you have help when you stumble. And there's great comfort in a community found nowhere else in our world. Together we stand against a hostile world. And with God in our midst, we are assured of victory. Even in a world that is ruled by oppression. All of the foolish things he did. Solomon has some real insight into living. We, we can chase that dollar bill all our lives. We can chase it. We can get it. We can run over people. We can put our hands on it. And all we'll have is an emptiness. Because all that's important isn't found there. It's in life with people. It's in life in a community. And our community is this church. We belong to that larger church. We gather at that table. We understand that we belong to something that is larger than us. But God put you here to be a part of what he's doing here. I love you. I almost don't want to say it because I don't want you to think it's rote. But I love you. And, And you know, I know something else. I know you love me too. But it's not just about me and you, it's about you and you. And you and you. You care for one another. Christ makes himself known in this place. We have something here that if the world knew what we had, they would kill to get it. And yet that's not the way it's gotten, is it? So in just a little bit, we're going to celebrate that community. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And and I need to say a couple things to you before we do that. I'm going to invite the men.